0: All right, ready for the word? All right, Uh, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be, 14 through 21. But uh, let me start by talking about a a different book. Um, Let's uh, talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many people love this book? You love this book. Of course, written by C.S. Lewis, uh, it tells the story uh, of the gospel, really, of Jesus Christ through a masterful allegory that is loved by uh, not just children, but adults, And in the early part of the story, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, four children have unexpectedly found themselves in a place called Narnia. Of course, they went through a wardrobe uh, to get there, and they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and are invited to their home, and they discover that the hope for Narnia to be loosed from the grip of the White Witch, to be loosed from her spell, which... Means that in Narnia it is always winter and never, right? Always winter and never Christmas. Rests the hope of that rest with this character named Aslan, who the children at this point know nothing about. But as Mister Beaver explained all of this, he said, and I quote from the book: "Now Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion." Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Lewis makes this stunning point about Aslan the lion, but of course it's really about Christ. We, we know that our God is not actually a safe God, but that's something that we as human beings actually would prefer. We tend toward a God that we can manage. A God who blesses us, for sure, but doesn't require very much of us. One who works in our lives, but not in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable. One who smooths the path in front of us, rather than upsetting our lives too much. That's the God that we're comfortable with. That's the Aslan that Susan was looking for, a safe lion. Yet what we see in the Bible and in history is that every major move of God brought tremendous upset to the status quo. It upset individual lives, it upset families, it upset all the institutions, the human institutions of government and religious institutions. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 as the church is launching and as Jesus' mission to the world is handed to those first 120 believers. What we see is a God who is infinitely good, but certainly not safe. A God who, in verse 17 we'll see this, a God who poured out his spirit, intent on doing many mighty works, a phrase we looked at last week. And all of this with a mind to accomplishing his mission. And you see, if we're going to be genuine Christians in the spirit of these 120 who launched the first church... And given the fact that we tend to be so cautious about things and want a prepackaged God that we can handle, the question we really need to ask ourselves is, what do we really need to know about the mighty works of God? And that's what the next several verses are really all about in this great chapter. And so I'm going to read chapter 2, 14 through 21. And um, I'll just say this, we're getting started on Peter's sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and we're going to look at this sermon in three sections over the next three Sundays. And so this first section begins at verse 14. Let me read this and we'll pray together. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray together. Father, this is a a holy moment sanctified by you, set apart for your purposes We have your word open in front of us. And we need to hear from you. Father, if we're honest to really unleash the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we know that we need to be prepared for disruption. We need to be prepared for things to change. And so God, I pray that we would indeed surrender ourselves completely to your will today to hear your word and be eager to do it father in whatever way you see um, is necessary whatever you deem best disrupt our lives today by the power of the holy spirit we pray in christ's name amen amen you sure you just said amen to disrupting your lives you sure I will see by the end of the sermon maybe you'll say right well, here we go. This is, um, this is what we're building off of. I, again, back in last week's passage, talking about the mighty works of God. And now we're saying, what I need to know about the mighty works of God is that they are, first of all, grace-based. The mighty works of God are, are grounded, are based in the grace of God. It's no small thing, verse 14 tells us, the preacher on this day of Pentecost is the apostle Peter. It's no small thing that it's Peter. Peter, standing with the 11, so the other guys are all backing him up, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Now, this is Peter who only seven weeks before, 49 days before this, was in probably the very same upper room Had had just taken the Last Supper with Jesus and the other apostles, and then hearing Jesus say that I'm gonna have to die and give my life for this, Peter makes this like bold declaration. This is in Luke 22 He says, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you, I'm ready to die with you. And then what happened just a few hours later? He denied him. How many times? Three times. He denied even knowing Jesus. I mean, far from going to prison with him, far from dying with him, he's now telling people, I don't even know who this guy is. Here's Peter up preaching. He went out at the end of denying him, verse 61 of Luke 22 tells us he went out and he wept bitterly because of his gross failure. And then after the resurrection, you remember he ran to the tomb because he was so excited about it and, 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 and Jesus had appeared to him. But there was still no healing. There was still the residual hurt over this denial. Peter knew he had done wrong and he hadn't talked to Jesus about it. And then in John 21, this amazing scene where by the Sea of Galilee, just Jesus and Peter having this one-on-one conversation and Jesus' heart and intent was to restore him, to lovingly and graciously restore him. To forgive him for his cowardice and his fear. Poured out grace on Peter. And here he is preaching on the day of Pentecost. Now grace we have defined many, many times here. And you'll know this if you've been here any length of time. Grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. Grace is the undeserved Not a person in this room deserves anything from God. All of the good things that we have in our lives. And everyone in this room has got some good things in their lives. And many of us have many good things in our lives. And all of it comes from the Lord. None of us can take credit for any of it. So the grace of God is undeserved and it's unearned. Lest anyone here thinks that somehow you can do some religious duty. That Oh, my worship was particularly good today. I obviously got God's favor. My offering was particularly generous. I'm, I'm a really good servant of Christ. I live a very moral life. Lest you think any of those works are accomplishing anything, remember that we have what we have by grace. It is undeserved and it is also unearned. No amount of works are going to earn our salvation, our standing before God. And so this grace, okay, you and me have it. Okay, we all have it here. But so does Peter. Peter. And these mighty works of God that we're going to talk about here are the expression of God's grace. They're the expression of God's plan to provide salvation for the world, to restore you and me, to cleanse us of our sin, to provide the way for us to be in a relationship with our God. It's all grace. There's no part of this that we deserve. We don't deserve the upper room. We, don't do, we took the Lord's table today. We don't deserve to have the Lord's table the upper room, the last supper, the, the body of Christ, the, the blood of Christ shed for us, broken, given for us. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the upper room. We don't deserve Gethsemane in the prayer that Jesus prayed. His, his prayer is so intense at taking on the weight of our sin that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. We don't deserve Gethsemane in his prayer. We don't deserve Calvary. We don't deserve the sacrifice, the pain he endured, the death that he suffered. We don't deserve any of that. We don't deserve the empty tomb and the rolled away stone and the the power of the resurrection and the new life it gives us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the ascension and the promises that it brings. We don't deserve Pentecost. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the fact that God in the, in the Holy Spirit now indwells those of us who are believers. Our eternal state now is set with him. We don't deserve any of that. It is entirely by grace. And A couple of things the Apostle Paul said that just put like the period at the end of that sentence, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. I don't have anything that I didn't receive. And in Ephesians 2a, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, Paul says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And so the first thing we have to lock in here as we talk about the mighty works of God is please understand that everything that God is doing in this world and everything that God is doing in your life is the result of grace the unearned and undeserved favor of God. That's, that's the basis for all of his mighty works. And then secondly, this, I also need to know that these um, mighty works of God are spirit-empowered. See that secondly? They're spirit-empowered. They're not a result of human effort. They're not natural phenomena that happened uh, coincidentally. Uh, they are spirit-empowered works. And last week we looked at the first 13 verses of chapter 2. And again, all of this ties together. It all fits together. We saw the Holy Spirit come with spectacular signs and wonders. In fact, there was a mighty rushing wind. And then there was this um, a fire-like thing that appeared and went over the heads of all 120. They were like tongues of fire. Uh, and, then, and then the Holy Spirit came upon uh, and, and, and filled every one of the believers, the 120 that were in the room. And, and each of them then began to speak the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, began to speak it in other languages that they had never learned before. And and all of this hubbub and commotion was then uh, something that attracted a crowd in Jerusalem. Many people there for the Pentecost festival. And so they're all hearing the gospel being spoken in languages that these people had never learned. And they're hearing the gospel in their own heart languages. They were from all over the known world. There were people who were astounded by that. who Who were rightfully amazed by hearing these Galileans speak the gospel in their own language. And they asked the right question, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? What are the implications of seeing someone miraculously speak the gospel in my own language? But there were some there as well. We talked about this last week. Some people there whose heart were so hard that they couldn't see it as a mighty work of God and had to explain it in some way. So those people said, clearly these people are drunk. Again, we said last week because drunk people often speak in languages they've never learned. But Peter doesn't go down. That was, the, that was kind of the explanation I gave. But Peter gave a whole different reason. He says in verse 15 now, for these people, you've just seen this great mighty work of God, but these people that you think are drunk are not drunk as you suppose. And he says, because it's only the third hour of the day. It's nine in the morning. They're not drunk. They can't be drunk. It's nine in the morning. Now, I know it's possible to be drunk at nine in the morning. The beer store, I think, is open at nine in the morning. But um, it's not a social convention. It's not a normal thing for people to be drunk at that hour of the day. And certainly a large group of people would not have had a party at 9 in the morning and gotten drunk. And so Peter kind of goes down that road. He says, they're clearly not drunk. It's too early in the day. And then he goes on to say, he's going to take this now as his opportunity to preach. Verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel little grammar note. But this is what was uttered, divine passive. This is what was uttered by God, okay, divine passive, through the prophet Joel. This is clear. These are God's words. And in the last days, key phrase, we'll come back to that. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, if you're taking notes, jot down that this whole passage, you can see it indented probably in your Bibles from 17 through 21. This whole passage comes from the Old Testament book of Joel, chapter 2, 28 to 32. And this, what Peter's doing here is what, what we do here. I do a little bit of an intro, and then I read this, the passage that we're going to look at, and then I unpack that passage. And essentially, that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He gives a little bit of an intro to kind of connect with the people, and then he's right into, this is the scripture passage that I'm going to use to show you that these things are from the Lord. So he's reading this, not reading, he's reciting from memory this Joel 2 passage. And he's going to use a couple of other Old Testament passages throughout the sermon we'll see in the coming weeks. But his point here is that Pentecost, what's happening today, is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, here are the things that are now true for the followers of Jesus Christ, for the true believers. They are now baptized in, indwelt by, empowered through, and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That too is a mighty work of God. And so when we think about that, if we're the followers of Christ, and we're committing our way to him, then everything that's going on here, forget the first Jerusalem church at that time, let's bring that down to us then. What we believe is that we preach here by the Spirit of God. That isn't just that, you know, the Holy Spirit is speaking, uh, using me, or that my words are uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit in any way, but God is working, that's part of it. But it's also the listener's, being empowered by the Holy Spirit to discern the truth of God's Word, and then to say, I know how that applies in my life. That's the Holy Spirit's conviction in our life. And so the whole transaction of speaking the Word of God and hearing, receiving the Word of God, all of that is by the Spirit of God. We serve by the Spirit of God. It's not... um, Contingent on what role you play. It isn't like, okay, the Holy Spirit gifted positions in this church are preaching and worship, obviously. But no, like every part of this, if we come with the right heart, the right attitude, we're followers of Jesus Christ and committed to his mission, then listen, welcoming people in the parking lot as they come in is no less part of the mission than what I'm doing right now. Serving in the sunshine room on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings With kids with unique needs, listen, that's no less part of the mission than what the worship team has done here today. We have to come with this attitude that no matter where I'm serving, I'm doing it by the Spirit. And God is using that to advance His mission Through this church, we sing and worship by the Spirit. We witness by the Spirit of God. In other words, we are receptors of the Holy Spirit, but we are also conduits of the Holy Spirit to this world so that, again, no matter what gift we're exercising, it's empowered by the Spirit to accomplish His will in the world. But, having said all of that, it isn't necessarily so. You see, any preacher can also preach in his own flesh, apart from the power of the Spirit. We can lead worship in our own strength and and, and take glory for ourselves. We can serve for selfish reasons. We can serve with hard hearts. We can serve just to get a tick in the box just because we're guilted into it. We can give to get back. We can even witness, thinking it gains us some favor with God or to boost our own ego. Look how many people I witness to. So if we want the Holy Spirit if we want the mighty works of God to actually be done through us, then we have to surrender to the Lord in these things. We're not content with just works. We're not content with just busyness. We're not content with churchy Christian activity. We don't want just works. We want the mighty works of God. Amen? Not just works, but the mighty works of God to be done in and through us. And The question is, will you make yourself available to God to work in and through you in this way? I mean, that's going to take surrender. That's going to take you saying, you know what? As I come today to do this service, to give this gift, to be in worship, As I go to speak your word to someone, to witness, to testify to who Jesus Christ is in my life, Father, I need your Holy Spirit to fill me and use me and empower me so that this isn't just some ordinary time of service that I'm not just ticking a box, but I'm seeing that what I'm doing is part of the mighty works of God. Spirit empowered. Spirit empowered. So we have grace-based, spirit empowered, and then here's a third one. Scripture grounded. Listen to this. The Lord will never do anything or communicate anything that is contrary to the revelation that he has given to us. True? You say, I'm not sure. Read it again. All right. The Lord will never do anything or communicate anything that is contrary to the revelation that he gave us. True? True? That's true, that's true. He, God's never going to do anything outside of this word that isn't consistent with this word, because this is his inspired and authoritative scripture to us. In 1 Corinthians 14:33, in fact, the Apostle Paul says that God is not the author of confusion. He's not the author of confusion. And the context of 1 Corinthians 14, we even talked about it last week, is prophecies. These these revelations that God is giving in this preaching and proclamation that's happening of the word of God. God is not the author of confusion. God will always be 100% consistent with his inspired word. And as we start to talk about the mighty works of God and the more miraculous mighty works of God, there are some believers in their zeal for the miraculous and in their love for signs who have overemphasized what we see here and who look for prophecies and dreams and visions, all these things we're going to talk about in a moment, who look for all of these things like every single day of the week and every weekend when you get together for worship. we need to pull back on that a little bit. God works when he works according to his will and not according to our will. That's critical. Christians cannot simply have a prophecy or speak in tongues at will. It is a mighty act of God through us. So the mighty works of God are grounded in the authoritative word of God. So we should not be conjuring up the Spirit like a magician would. Don't conjure up the Spirit. It's God's prerogative to give gifts such as tongues and prophecies and dreams and visions. He does it at His will. And it seems like it was His will to do so in an extraordinary way at the launching of the church in Acts chapter 2. It's not surprising, and Paul backs this up. He writes to the Ephesian church, in fact. This is Ephesians 2, uh, 19 through 22 is the whole passage. He says, you are members of the household of God, speaking to the believers in Ephesus. You are the household of God. You're the church of God. Notice he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, the apostles, there were only ever 12 of them. And they have very specific qualifications. First among them being that they were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. So they were necessary, as it says here, for the foundation of the church, the starting of the church. We need these 12 guys who are standing up and who are saying, I saw the resurrected Jesus. The things I'm preaching about and testifying to, I witnessed these things myself. That's why the 12 were so necessary. But added to the 12, notice, not just the 12, Added to the 12, according to Paul, are these prophets. And again, we see this all through the book of Acts. So we talked about the need for the 12 to be official witnesses to resurrection. And that's why, as Peter's preaching, you see it, the 11 are all standing with him. It would be like there was 11 guys standing behind me right now just backing up the thing that I'm saying. That's what's going on. But beyond that, there were prophets who were specially gifted to proclaim the word of God, who were also given to the church and who are also, according to Paul, seen as foundational for the establishing of the church. And so, Peter, with that as kind of background, back to our text now, still quoting the prophecy in Joel, Peter says that Pentecost was characterized by, verse 17 continues, this is what, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now you look at that verse, and it's super controversial. And the number one reason why it's controversial is because everybody wants to know what constitutes young and old. Isn't that the first thing that came to your mind as you were reading this? It's like, this is so controversial. I wonder if I'm old or young, right? Everybody's wondering that. So I did some research on this, and I looked back, and in the ancient Near East, in the context in which this was written, a young person is like, uh, talking about adults now, okay, but uh, between 18 and 30. So if you're 31, you're no longer young, okay? 18 to 30, that's young. So, So the young men spoken of here. And then, you know, particular importance to me, I was really concerned about, you know, who's old. And so I did the research on this, and curiously, it's like 56 and up. Are old, and uh, if I preach this next year, that number may change. So <laughs> it's actually like fifty and up, and and so that's th- th- just funny. But listen, your your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Sons and daughters are going to prophesy. Mighty work of God, and your young men are going to see visions. Your old men are going to dream dreams. And the difference between dreams and visions is probably just the: Are you awake or are you asleep? Okay. It's probably just as simple as that. But these three miraculous ways that God communicates, all of which are well attested to in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, prophesying visions and dreams. We're going to look at each one of these. Let's look, first of all, at at prophecy. The word prophecy, noun prophecy with a C, verb to prophesy with an S, okay? Prophecy or to prophesy, three possible meanings, all of which we see in the scriptures. I think we have this up on a slide now. To prophesy is, first of all, uh, to uh, proclaim. One type of prophecy is proclamation. It's to preach or pronounce an inspired word. So in some ways, the thing that I'm doing right now is a kind of prophesying, preaching, because I'm taking the inspired word of God. Not that my words are inspired, but this is inspired. Okay, and so that's a type of prophecy of proclamation. Some of it can even be more miraculous than that, where it's prophecy coming um, from the Lord. And certainly we see examples about, throughout the scripture where a word is coming directly from the Lord to someone to pronounce an inspired word. Two, prophecy is also to reveal, to tell something that is hidden from view. So the Lord gives a prophet a word that no one else knows, and the word is delivered so that people will now know. There's no other way for the prophet to know it except that God revealed it. And then a third type of prophecy, and this is the most common and the one that we think of most often. Okay? We think prophecy, we automatically think future. And the third type of prophecy is to foretell, to predict something that lies in the future. All of this came from the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Now Paul's point in the sermon will be that what they had experienced with the 120, yes, they're speaking in tongues, known languages, tongues, okay? The 120 speaking the gospel in these unlearned languages was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit as prophecy. So they were doing it in another language, but they were prophesying. They were preaching or pronouncing an inspired word about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's using Joel 2 to make that point. This is the fulfillment of what was going on in Joel 2. So in this case, it's number one on our list. That's the kind of prophecy we're thinking about. Not predictive prophecy, but proclamational. Not foretelling of the future, but forthtelling of the gospel. They're telling people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Joel's prophecy itself, if you go back to Joel 2 and you think about just that prophecy, that prophecy Was foretelling of the future. It was speaking to what's going to happen at Pentecost, and in fact, it's speaking about what's going to happen in the uh, further future, even for us. But what he predicted was a type of prophecy in Acts 2 that was, in fact, proclamation by the unction of the Holy Spirit. So that's prophecy. And next we see visions and dreams. Again, maybe waking and sleeping, we're not exactly sure. Those definitions don't exactly come to us in that way. But in any event, it's God working through our subconscious self to hear a message from him. Well attested to in both the Old Testament, the Gospels, and in through the rest of the New Testament. Peter, for example, receives a vision. And based on that vision, he goes and visits a man named Cornelius and leads him to Christ. A man named Ananias received a vision to go and see the Apostle Paul, who had just had this encounter with Jesus and was left blind. And Ananias goes to, to heal him of that. And we have other dreams and visions that are had throughout the Scripture. Paul has them, and, and John has them. And so well attested to, even in the New Testament, these dreams and these visions that we're seeing. And they figured prominently in the advance of the gospel. These were deemed necessary means to, a necessary means to establish the church. But then as the church took root, as it began to expand and mature and go around the world, the more miraculous means of communication were less needed. Not entirely dispatched with, but just less needed. That said, even though they were less needed, by no means has God ceased to give dreams and visions or to give prophecies. They may not be as common as some would like to think, but the Lord is still speaking through miraculous means. Now I get that that makes, you know, all the Baptists in the room a little uncomfortable. I get that. That, that some of us were, were in traditions where that kind of thing was not talked about that we would quickly dismiss any notion of dreams and visions and prophecies, and we would shove those to the side and just say, that was then, but this is now. And yet there's no scripture that really points us to the fact that God has ceased to speak or to act in this way. It may not be as common as it once was at the inauguration of the church, at the founding of this great mission. But we shouldn't limit the Lord. In fact... When you look at the rest of the New Testament, I get that the cautions, but, but how can we discern if this is real and what are the dangers and what if there's false prophets and what if people say things and what if people you know, just had a bad meal the night before and it's not really a dream from God? And I get all of those cautions and in fact, the authors of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit knew that those cautions were legit. And so repeatedly we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, along with several other passages, where there's these cautions and, and, and encouragement for us to be discerning about these things and to compare everything we hear to the word of God. Is it consistent with the scriptures or not? If it's not, we reject it. Matthew 24, 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, and 1 John 4, 1 to 3, the apostle Paul, the apostle John, Jesus himself, all warning about false prophets. You don't need to warn about false prophets if there's no prophecy at all. And so we need to be cautious about all of that. And, you know, I was first confronted uh, by all of this. I'm a pretty rational person and not given to, you know, the more miraculous or charismatic things um, in, in our faith. But about 20, 25 years ago, probably, I was at my former church. I was an associate pastor, and we had an extensive missions program. One of the agencies, we still love this agency, and Cheryl and I got to take a trip with them last year, and we have some people in this agency that we love dearly, Trans World Radio. And I remember them coming in those days. And um, again, 25 years ago, our Baptist church was pretty Baptist, and, and they would come, and they had stories, and Steve would just tell me, he says, you know, we, we're just so cautious about sharing these stories in the churches that support us back in, in Canada, the U S because we're just fearful that people will cut off their support. If they heard some of the things that are actually happening on the field. And in one story, I remember Steve telling me this story attested to by someone else, um, who was more directly involved, but, uh, Steve and his wife were actually part of uh, the mission in, in Monte Carlo. And, uh, they broadcast the gospel into North Africa, into Muslim, North Africa, Algeria, Liberia, and, and, uh, Libya rather. And, um, Closed countries, no gospel witness, no churches. And they would get stories back like this one. I remember this one in particular, that one village deep in North Africa without any gospel witness, no church, no Christians, 200 people on the same night had the same vision, the same dream, woke up the next morning and shared it with one another. 200 people all dreamed about Jesus and his call for them to become followers. These letters started to arrive in Monte Carlo to Transworld Radio, and and they understood that a mighty work of God had just taken place. And I thought about that, and I said, like, is that an isolated situation? Is that just one story? But in fact, the story's repeated over and over again. I found this um, blog post, When Muslims Dream of Jesus, um, by Darren Carlson. It was on the Gospel Coalition US site, and I will link to this in the sermon notes on hbc.info. But a study was published in 2007 that recounted interviews with 750 former Muslims who had converted to evangelical Christianity. Many of the reasons they gave for their conversion would be expected. Love of God, changing view of the Bible, and attraction to Christians who loved others. But one reason might come as a surprise, the experience of a dream they believed to be from God. Mission Frontiers magazine also did research into this and reported that out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led to their conversion. He goes on to say that while Christians have a variety of approaches to dreams, Muslims, Shia Muslims in particular, are open to dreams being revelatory. So they have dreams of jesus if they have a dream of jesus they take that like very seriously because muslims are given shia muslims are given to that and so the the dreams kind of usually fall into one of four categories it's jesus speaking scripture to them even scripture they'd never heard before jesus telling people to do something a dream or a vision that led to a feeling of being clean or at peace or a man in white physically appearing kind of fall into those four categories here's one example he shares several examples But here's one example. A friend of mine tells of a a Persian migrant who arrived at a refugee center at 6 a.m. visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor and during during the night he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, who are you? And the man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, who is he? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. In response, the pastor held out his Bible and asked, have you seen this before? He said, no. Do you know what it is? No. The pastor then opened to the book of Revelation and read this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The man started crying and he said, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? So the pastor led him in prayer and a peace came over him. The pastor then gave the man a Bible but told him to hide it since the Muslims in the camp could cause him trouble. But the man replied, the Jesus that I met today, he's more powerful than the Muslims in the camp. He left and an hour later returned with 10 more Persians and told the pastor, these people want a Bible too. No one had to teach him an evangelistic strategy. Now that is the story of one Persian Iranian migrant. But that is a mighty work of God that is grounded in the scriptures. And it's very hard, impossible in fact, for a Christian who genuinely embraces the word of God to reject that kind of work. God is at work, amen? He's at work in miraculous ways and we need to see it and embrace it and ask God to do more of it in this world. All right, are you hanging in there? Everybody doing okay? We've got three down, two to go. The mighty works of God are also... End times oriented. In other words, the mighty works of God point us to what's coming. And we can't miss that while Peter uses Joel 2 to make his point about Pentecost, I still have questions about the complete fulfillment of the prophecy. I read it and I just go, okay, I get how that part was fulfilled at Pentecost, but I see some other parts in Joel 2 that I don't think were fulfilled at Pentecost, not fulfilled in the whole plan that Christ had at that time. See, Peter goes on, He says this, this is verse 19 and 20 now. Again, he's still quoting from Joel. He says, and I will show wonders in the heavens. This is God speaking through Joel, Peter quoting it. I will show wonders in the heavens and the heavens above, signs in the earth below. And then he lists some of these signs. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, at the... At the death of Christ, remember, there was an earthquake. Remember that the sun had been darkened, so the, the day went dark. There was an earthquake. There were some graves that were open, and some people came back to life. So there were some signs, but there weren't precisely all the things that we're reading here. And so we see that maybe some of the things were fulfilled, but not all of the things were fulfilled. He says, I'll show you wonders in the heavens and above and signs on the earth below. Before, he says, notice this key phrase, the day of the Lord, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And we've already heard back to verse 17. We already heard about the last days. That's another key phrase. And we're going to come back to both of these two phrases and why they're so important. Now, some context about Joel chapter 2. We want to lock down what's happening here with this prophecy. When Joel wrote his prophecy all those hundreds of years before, He is writing it to a rebellious nation, Israel, who had disappointed the Lord, had sinned against the Lord. And there was this punishment of this plague of locusts that were coming upon the nation. They repented and and at the people's repentance, the Lord restored them, took the locusts away and he restored the nation and and he gave them the promise now of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so... We see this promise being fulfilled, but not fully fulfilled. There's actually three fulfillments going on here. And this is true for many, many Old Testament prophecies. If you're taking notes again, jot these down. First of all, there's an immediate fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. The locust plague ends, the land is restored. That's the immediate fulfillment. Then there's the second fulfillment at the coming of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Luke-Acts, in the Gospels, and in the book of Acts. That's the second fulfillment, but, but you can still see details. You go, like, I, I don't think that part was fulfilled. And then there's a final fulfillment at the end of the age when God culminates his entire redemptive plan. We're still waiting for all of that to happen. And so, very important here, very common for the Old Testament. One prophecy, three fulfillments coming out of the one prophecy. And again, we know this because we see only partial fulfillments in the Old Testament and in the New Testament accounts. We're still waiting. And so we live, we live in the in-between. We live between the, the uh, second fulfillment and the final fulfillment. And so we put this together with those two phrases that we have, Verse 17, the last days, we often think about this and we think about it, well, I can't wait until we're in the last days or I think we're in the last days. You don't need to think about it. We are in the last days. The last days began with the coming of Jesus Christ. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It's a phrase that refers to this whole epoch in history from the time of Christ until, until, I'm going to tell you exactly when the last days are going to end. Ready for this? I'm going to interpret prophecy for you today. I'm going to give you the exact moment that the last days end. Everybody ready for this? They end on the day of the Lord. Oh, you feel like I just tricked you, didn't you? You weren't going to get a date out of me. You know that. They end on the day of the Lord. That's the other key phrase. The day of the Lord is when he returns in his glory so that the mighty works of God That we're seeing all of these mighty works, the prophecies, the visions, the dreams, all of the ways God works through you and all of your gifts. In every way that God works, all of it is pointing forward to the day of the Lord. And all of it is intended to give us hope in the midst of everything that this world throws at us. Because we need this hope because this world is so badly broken and our lives are so very hard. And as Christians, we ought to be talking this up a little bit more than we do. I know life is hard right now, but the day of the Lord is coming. I know this world is messed up, but the day of the Lord is coming. So many people think that October 21st and the next federal election is somehow going to solve all of Canada's problems. Uh, The day of the Lord is coming, because the election ain't going to solve it. We ought to talk this up more. We ought to be front-loading the coming of the Lord, because it provides us an impetus and a motivation for this mission that we're on. And in fact, that's the last point. The mighty works of God are mission-centric. The prophecies about the future, the The signs, the manifestations, they point to the central message and the reason for our mission. There's too many Christians who are into this wall chart prophecy thing where they're trying to figure out all the intricate details of all of the end times prophecies. They're unceasingly fascinated and obsessed with the details of the end times, but they miss the point of the mission. coming of Jesus Christ, should stir up in us in a desire, a desire to tell everyone and anyone about him. To speak about the coming apocalypse and the end of the age, to speak about the new heavens and the new earth that awaits. We're to be mission-centric, gospel-centered people who know that the last days are a motivation to proclaim the message. Peter gets it. He quotes Joel too, not just to explain the phenomena that were happening of the 120 speaking in foreign languages of the prophecy that was happening. Not just to point to the fact that our sons and daughters are going to dream dreams and that old men are going to have visions. He says it because we live in the in-between and there's a mission to accomplish while we're here. Peter drives to his point in this sermon intro, and he pulls right out of Joel 2, 21, and he says this, this is really the point of it. And it shall come to pass. This is what I've been trying to say the whole time. It's not about the signs. It's not about the dreams. It's not about the visions. It's not about the prophecies and the miracles. All of that points to one thing. It points to Jesus. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is about the gospel. So I'd leave you with the same appeal. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? I mean, there's a lot in this message for any Christian in the room who maybe has lapsed in some area, has not invited the Holy Spirit to come in. There's lots of application for us to stretch our faith and to see God do things that are well beyond what we might be comfortable with to lean into a God who isn't safe. There's lots of opportunity for Christians to apply the message in that way. But the number one way, and we're gonna hear it again next week and the week after, the number one thing that's happening here is Peter's preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus yet. And there might be some of those in the room. And if you've not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, call on the name of the Lord before you leave this room and set your eternity with Him but it's not a safe thing it's not a safe thing to call on the name of the Lord it will disrupt the status quo of your life and yet by calling on Jesus He isn't safe but he is good. And if you call on the name of the Lord, Christian, if you repent for any sin issues that are in your life, the Lord will unleash such goodness in your life that you will not be able to contain it. And you will see an increasing, an increasing of the mighty works of God in and through you. Let me pray for us. So, Father, having heard your word, to think about you not being a safe God, we would, um, those of us willing in this room, would lay ourselves before you right now and trust you for whatever you have for us. Knowing that above all things you are loving and you are good and you are kind so, God, I pray that um, if there are believers in this room who have allowed their faith to to grow cold, who have waned in their passion and their zeal for you, that, God, there would be prayers of repentance being spoken around the room right now. That your Holy Spirit would be responding in tenderness and love and pouring out increased grace that too is a mighty work of God, that, that we would repent. And God, I pray for any in the room who have not yet bowed before you and surrendered their life to Christ. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be convicting them right now, convincing them of their need of Christ. God, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work to block the doors and not allow them to leave until they have surrendered to Christ. We're grateful for the the one man who professed Christ after last Sunday's service. But God, we want more than one. God, we would desire that every person you put in our way who doesn't know Jesus would hear about him and would respond to the offer of salvation. So continue to do that mighty work in us. And through us, Father, we pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ.